Hello Thrivers! Welcome! Today we have a big one. This is Bill Richards. He is a PhD working in the John Hopkins Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. But not just any PhD, my Thrivers. He's been there since the 60s. He's been doing research in addictions, in depression, in existential distress for the terminally ill. Then he went through the whole prohibition of psychedelic research back, I think it was back in the 70s, when the, the money from the last grant dried out. And he was the last researcher to give one psychedelic dose to a patient. Then there was this time or, or around 22 years where none of this research could occur. And then he came back. He came back, back in the 90s, and started this revolution that is at the verge of exploding. And I'm very excited to have had this conversation with him. He talks about the story of psychedelic research. He talks about his life and what his motivation for, for pushing this science forward. And he's going to drop so many wisdom bombs that you're going to come out of this episode a wiser human being. You're going to love it. Enjoy. It's the Christian Beer Show. Welcome, welcome, Bill, to Thrive. Thank you for joining. I'm very excited about talking with you today. I'm excited about being here with you. <laughs> yeah, I really like our conversations. I, I really feel very lucky to, to have a chance to talk with you once a month. I think that it, every time I talk with you, I live uplifted for the rest of the day. Oh. Yeah, you, you, you do have a, a sort of power with with your words and attitude towards life, I feel like. Well, it may be uh, contagious both ways. <laughs> okay, so so there's a couple of things that I would love to talk about. First, I know you're in my in my mind. You're one of the biggest uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy researchers the world has, and. And I, I just like would love to know like what got you there? Like wh what got you started into doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> chance, uh, good luck, good friends, uh, uh, hanging on to the dream when it looked like it was fizzling out. Uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it has been a wild ride for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy research, right? Like at the beginning, in the 50s and 60s, it seemed like this, this incredibly promising thing that could help psychiatry, depression, existential distress in the terminally ill. And then, and then it suddenly died for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, so you were there doing the research from the early days. How, how were those days? Uh, very hopeful, very uh, inspiring, very exciting. Uh, 
I can remember us back in uh, around 1970, sitting around the conference table, wondering how we were going to train the hordes of therapists that would be needed in a few years, and uh, you know how effective this seemed to be uh, in treatment of addictions and uh, work with terminal cancer patients, uh, helping them live more fully, uh, and uh, just facilitating creativity and high functioning and normal healthy people, whatever they are. And uh, uh, then, you know, the funding uh, dried up, the support dried up, the mood of the culture uh, uh, changed. Uh, President Nixon said Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. And for some reason, a lot of people believed him. Hmm. And the idea was if you took a psychedelic, you were going to jump off a skyscraper and have a deformed baby. And <laughs> it's really crazy stuff. Uh, and so it uh, really got dormant for, uh, well, technically, from my perspective, 22 years of my life. Wow. Uh, in 1977, I gave psilocybin to the last cancer patient. And then it was dormant until um, Roland Griffiths and I began uh, work in 1999 at Hopkins, uh, other than Rick Strassman's work with DMT in the early uh, uh, 1990s. But, uh, and now it's, I think I'm dreaming almost. It's expanding so many places I can even, not only don't I know all the researchers, I can't even name all the places where research is going on anymore, you know? Yeah, it's so and it's a very hopeful time. Yeah. And let me ask you something. How, how was like, the dormant years? Like you said that it was dormant for like 22 years. In running sessions, we tell people, trust, let go, be open. And that's a pretty good philosophy for everyday living, too. So that's what I tried to do. And I uh, let go of the uh, uh, identity as the shaman who took people across the river sticks before they died. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a needle trap in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, put my energies into teaching and private practice and raising my kids and playing my piano and taking care of my garden. And, uh, uh, I didn't know you played the piano. Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden 22 years went by and we were back in business again. Amazing. And then, okay. So what led to restarting things like, like 22 years passed and then who said okay let's do this again let's try it out and see what happens well, a lot of credit goes to bob jesse who uh, is the head of the council on spiritual practices in san francisco and he wanted to get research moving again with psychedelics so he scheduled i think there were three different uh, kind of think tank summits in California, and he invited participants, sort of like a chef choosing just the right herbs in the mm. right combination. Uh, 
And, uh, but he got a very prestigious group, including people from uh, the FDA and National Institutes of Health. And uh, uh, I participated in two of those meetings. And uh, we just brainstormed about how to get started. And then Bob introduced Roland Griffiths and me uh, to one another. We both lived in Baltimore, but we hadn't met. Mm-hmm. And he thought we could uh, get into some uh, scientific mischief together. <laughs> and uh, uh, we've been together over 20 years now. Uh, but Roland uh, was a full professor, still is, at, at Johns Hopkins in the uh, Department of Psychiatry and uh, Neuroscience. Had good relations with the FDA. Um, <laughs> and was very interested in meditation, though he didn't know a whole lot about psychedelics. Uh, but he had experienced some meaningful meditative states himself that made him open and curious. And uh, of course, I had the history of having worked at Spring Grove for a decade and in Germany before that. And so I knew how to implement the research, how to design the set and setting and um, actually guide people through sessions. And so we've been a great team. And um, now uh, Hopkins is significantly expanding. Uh, we're, as you may know, we were just gifted with $17 million to uh, launch the uh, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins, which actually exists. And um, who knows what the future will be. There are many bright, dedicated, uh, gifted people coming on board, and we'll see how it develops. It's so exciting, and and there's so many areas in which psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is expanding, or psychedelic-related research, right? Like we have major depressive disorder, addictions, um, existential distress in the terminally ill, even cluster headaches. I I saw a study for recently. Um, mm-hmm. What 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 is the where do you think things are going, or where would you like? to see things going in the next few years? Well, what I hope to see and to live to see is uh, psilocybin coming off schedule one and being prescribable and by trained people. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the intervention of psilocybin therapy being covered by Medicare and other insurance policies so that, um, as I'm fond of saying, people who don't own a tie-dye t-shirt and can't <laughs> spell psychedelic uh, uh, and will never grow their own shrooms <laughs> can have access to this intervention in a reasonable, cost-effective way. Mm. I think we're headed in that direction. It seems like we are. It seems like we are. Um, I know that uh, in my experience, I'm originally from Ecuador, and in Ecuador, it, psychedelics, when guided uh, through, by a shaman, 
the they they are actual legal um, activity uh, protected by law uh, in 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 for the protection of the indigenous uh, traditions of of South America, and and so over there I was exposed uh, to ayahuasca and I and I found it to be like so promising or, or so healing and that's why I decided to get involved in this kind of research and I and I kind of want to know your story I would love to know your story and and how you became who you are <laughs> or who I'm becoming who knows what I'll be when I grow up <laughs> true <laughs> um yeah, my, my entrance to this field, as I describe in my book, uh, Sacred Knowledge, uh, occurred when I was 23 years old. I was a graduate student at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Uh, I actually went there to study theology, believe it or not. And um, in the backyard of the dormitory where I was living was the university psychiatric clinic and they were testing some new drug I had never heard of called psilocybin. <laughs> and they were looking for volunteers. And uh, the rumor was that it gave you uh, insights from early childhood. And so uh, I went over and uh, volunteered and they led me to a little basement room, uh, gave me an injection and left me alone. Oh my God. Um, and they didn't know any better in those <laughs> days. And um, I think it was on the basis of my Methodist piety uh, that I trusted that God would be with me if any terrible insights about my Oedipal complex <laughs> were to surface. <laughs> and uh, to my total amazement, this uh, incredibly exquisitely beautiful transcendental state of consciousness opened up um, that essentially uh, the Hindus would call moksha or samadhi or the beatific vision in Christianity, um, so on. And I did not expect that. I didn't even know it was an option. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even heard the word psychedelic yet. If I did, I wouldn't be sure what it meant, you know? Mm -hmm. So that I became known in the clinic as that interesting American student who had the mystical experience. <laughs> and um, they were using low dosage and no support in the setting setting. So most people were having perceptual changes and childhood memories and a little panic and paranoia. But my experience was really uh, atypical. And um, that led to, uh, during the year to uh, becoming a research uh, assistant in the clinic and guiding English speaking people through their uh, LSD sessions or psilocybin sessions uh, because the drug was still legal there. And it was a perfectly reasonable thing for a graduate student or a visiting professional to have a psychedelic experience, especially if you write up a good report, you know, mm -hmm. a good educational tool. Mm -hmm. 
and no controversy about it at <laughs> all in those days. It's hard to imagine, you know? Right. Uh, so that's how I got launched. And uh, my interest, of course, shifted uh, from theology into more psychology of religion and comparative religion. Uh, and uh, I became then a, uh, a licensed psychologist. Um, once I picked up a PhD degree along the way because I needed that to do research. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest is history, yeah. Right. And, and speaking about comparative religion, what sometimes when I think about religion, and, and different religions, I really think that there, there is some ritualistic aspect to it, but in, in, in its source, they all come from these in, like, um, insights that are shared by, whole, by the whole humanity. And, and then there's different ways to express them in, depending on, on different cultural traditions. But you being the expert in this field, what, what is your summary of an outtake of, of comparative religion in terms of how do you see them in the world and, and what their purpose is? A couple thoughts. What one <laughs> is, I, I think these mystical transcendental experiences are at the origin of all the great religious systems. Though they emerge with different structures in different language and different traditions. Uh, but the other thought is that uh, what I would consider a healthy religion, you know, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish or Christian or Muslim or you name it, you know, Taoist, um, a healthy religion has essentially uh, four pillars, four roots, you know, and there's the source of actual devotion and religious experience, which is incredibly valuable, you know? Mm -hmm. It makes it real, it makes it connect, it makes it uh, vibrant, you know? Mm -hmm. But then there's also uh, the study of the scriptures, whether it's the Bible or the Talmud or the um, uh, Tao Te Ching, you, you, you name it. There's always this scriptural uh, base of a religion. And then there's the theology, the, which is basically a rational system of tradition and creeds and, uh, you know, I believe A, B, C, D, E. Um, and then there's the social action, the uh, uh, karma yoga you know, the activity in the world, you know, going to, into the hospitals and the soup kitchens and uh, acting out your values of decreasing suffering in the world. And um, I think if you have just one or two of those pillars, you're kind of impoverished, you know? And I like the idea of nurturing all four. Yeah. But, you know, some of us have, uh, uh, there's one or two that are dominant, you know? For sure, for sure. But there are different ways of being a religious person in the world, yeah. 
So I, I could see how, speaking in terms of your, in the pillars that you're talking about, I could see how the, the action-based one is relatively easy to tackle through a community action, volunteering, et cetera. The, the structural part, uh, the logical one, by just like following the creeds, et cetera. Now, the other two, I feel like a little bit harder. Like, how do you promote do- uh, a devotional experience like i i think that's a consequence of 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 a way of living to one extent i i don't know like what are your thoughts about that yeah well uh there are many forms of religious experience mm-hmm. uh, some happen spontaneously to people you know some happen in the depths of prayer or meditation or sensory isolation, or sensory overload, or the runner's high, or natural childbirth, or creative performance, all that Abraham Maslow called peak experiences, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then there are psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And the value of psychedelics, if they're used wisely, is just that they're so incredibly uh, potent and reliable, you know? Uh, you can go to a meditation treat on, retreat on a Saturday afternoon uh, and you might get more centered, but very few people are going to experience a unitive consciousness, you know. But if you have an adequate dose of a major psychedelic and you're well prepared, uh, you may have an experience of a lifetime on the, in that Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. So they're very very valuable tools um, if we use them wisely. Yeah, I, it, I, I was thinking about this yesterday and, and how if things turn out, if the research shows, uh, the phase three uh, research shows how the things that we have seen in phase two trials so far in terms of uh, existential distress, etc., and the psychedelics do become FDA approved and schedule one gets rescinded and they start to be prescribed. It'll be a very interesting world in which one maybe is, is having some uh, depression and, and then they go to their therapist or their psychiatrist and, and they expect to feel a little bit better. And then they take a psychedelic and then they have a mystical experience that you need carrying and a touch with the deepest part of their soul. And then they come back and say, wow, life's completely different. And then they go on with their day. And that sounds like a powerful way of doing medicine. And I'm just very excited about that happening in the, in the near future. Yeah. And, you know, as I think your most of your listeners know, it's not just simply taking the drug and having the mystical experience, like mm-hmm. taking an aspirin and getting rid of your headache. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be preparation and the intention to uh, develop uh, personally and spiritually, even if it takes you through uh, some psychological distress, grief and guilt and interpersonal relationships and um, um, the so-called dark night of the soul uh, is part of the spiritual journey. And you have to be willing to go through that if it emerges and not just call it a bad trip and run away from it, you know? That's Uh, so true. 
That's the real bad trips, if you will, are when people um, aren't prepared and they fight for control instead of trusting. And then they try to run away from what is emerging. So they get panicked and paranoid. You know, it's like a nightmare. You know, if the monster appears and you go towards the monster, you say, hello, monster. Uh, <laughs> what are you doing in my mind? What are you made of? What can I learn from you? And you look into the eyes of the monster, maybe even dive into the pupil, you know? Uh, then there's insight and there's transformation, you know? Mm -hmm. And you uh, even uh, perhaps uh, claim the energy that's been locked up in the fear that's been crawling around in the basement of your life, okay? Uh, but if you run from it, uh, you simply panic and have what we call a nightmare, you know? What are you running from? Well, you're running from something within you that's trying to teach you something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that makes me think of day-to-day of -day life and, and the different things that we uh, think of right before we go to sleep. Um, like those, those little things that, oh, I really want to do this or I really should stop doing this. And, and when the time comes, there's a mild fear that we can maybe like cover with a procrastination or focusing on, on something else. And it, it really is a, a representation of like that psychedelic trip, that, that uh, facing that fear in the daily life is facing that little fear of that person that you want to become, what do you need to do in order to do, in order to become that? And, and just like getting yourself out of what you know to learn that thing that, you, that it's not integrated yet. And I think that having that experience in the psychedelic uh, um, therapy session can really be an, an amazing example of living this way in your daily life as well. Yeah. And the one thing we learn from psychedelic research, it's, you know, just completely obvious at this point, is that we are more than our egos, our everyday personalities that go with our uh, given names, you know, that there are resources, uh, memories, uh, images, uh, realities within our minds that ha seem to have nothing to do with our uh, enculturation, our, what we've learned from birth to the present. Where does that stuff come from? You know, is it genetically encoded somehow? Is it uh, spiritually accessed, whatever that means, you know? But we know that uh, people do frequently experience absolutely uh, amazingly inspiring and beautiful things uh, that are often from religious traditions uh, different from the one they grew up in. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, talk about a laboratory of uh, research in comparative religion or philosophy or uh, even quantum physics, you name it. Uh, this is it. You know? We just have to use it wisely. Yeah. And, and it, 
I feel like one of the things that psychedelic research brings to the world is it really does show us how much we don't know about the mind, about mental health, and and it really brings a lot of humility and excitement for what will be discovered in the future. I feel like sometimes the field of, uh, of mental health specifically lags behind other major sciences. And, mm. and I really like what uh, Stanislav Grof says that psychedelics could be uh, an analog of what the microscope is for microbiology in terms of mental health. Mm-hmm. Or the telescope in astronomy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we have an incredibly valuable tool. Why are we afraid to use it? Why have we, you know, the psychedelics have been around at least 5,000 years. And they emerge in cultures and then they get suppressed. And then they, I'm tempted to say, like mushrooms, you know, (laughs) (laughs) there they are again. And uh, then they get uh, uh, forbidden. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of ridiculous that uh, in the United States right now, you, you can be arrested if the wrong species of mushrooms happens to grow in your yard, you know. I don't know if anyone would enforce that, but but isn't that weird? How did we ever get there? You know, it, it's so weird. It's so, yeah. it's so unusual that one would criminalize nature, like mm-hmm. yeah, it, yeah. It, it, or, and even the psilocybin uh, we use in research, you know, has to be kept in a locked safe. Uh, the safe has to be bolted to the ground if it weighs less than 750 pounds, you know? Oh, my God. You know, this isn't a radi- radioactive isotope. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a simple molecule that Indians have been using in their ceremonies for thousands of years. What's the big deal? What's the fear, you know? Yeah, and and but then that's a good question though because it it's not like it just happened in the sixties, as you says, it is a, it happens in cycles. It it goes, uh, it becomes known, and then it gets uh, made illegal or or made forbidden. I mean, it did happen once when uh, the Spanish colonized South America. It happened again in the sixties, and I think it happened sometime in Europe. I'm, and my history around that specific time period, it's. It's somewhat um, unclear, but but there is a it is a valid question to ask, like what it is that we fear, and and I think that maybe one answer could possibly be like there's a fear of knowing ourselves. The more that we know ourselves, the more that we will challenge conventions that are pretty pretty grounded in our society, and and I think that may be the fear. That was Alan Watts' theme. Uh, he said, uh, it's the taboo of knowing who you are. You know? Yeah, yeah. and, and knowing... Kidding. Go ahead. You know, there's a, there's a book, uh, you may know of it, uh, just coming out within the next few days, actually, mm-hmm. uh, by Brian Murarescu, M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U, I think, or similar, called The Immortality Key. 
and it's basically a very uh, scholarly uh, um, argument with drawing on ancient languages and archaeology and all that the earliest Christian sacrament in the, the earliest days of Christianity was indeed a psychedelic substance. Mm. It kind of it was the sacrament that worked. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, it's so different from the bread and the grape juice we use in most <laughs> Christian churches these days. You know? I could see how, I, 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 I know that the beginning of Christianity was a very hard road for the Christians. They, they, they would be crucified. You would be killed if you said that you were a Christian. And to really have, of course, I'm sure there, 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 is an, there, there was an amount of people that just out of pure conviction would hold into their beliefs. But I would find it more easy to believe that through this sacrament being a psychedelic and through this psychedelic experience having a, a mystical uh, touch with uh, whatever lies beyond bringing this conviction to the people that push this forward. I like I, that sounds like a potentially convincing argument to me. And I'm very excited about that book. You, you have told me about it. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for it to come out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dream of the day when uh, uh, there are psychedelic experiences offered to theological students with academic credit, kind of a weekend workshop. You know, why, that there's knowledge to be had uh, in these alternative states of consciousness. Uh, I mean, why shouldn't uh, someone, a uh, religious professional or anyone for that matter, be able to experience the uh, beauty and wisdom that's in the source of many of our world religions, you know? It's there within each of us, or so it appears. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um, in the future, or or even as as research now is, is continuing to develop, do you see synergistic ways of achieving uh, self knowledge beyond just the use of psychedelics? Like, do you see a uh, a way in which it would be integrated self well with meditation or yoga practices or or any any other type of activities uh, absolutely yes uh, both to facilitate these experiences and to integrate them to kind of digest them and apply the insights in everyday living uh, both and not either or you know and now, especially in uh, some of these new uh, meditation apps uh, that people have on their iPhones, are really very well crafted. Uh, yoga has become uh, quite accepted, uh, even in conservative religious communities, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we certainly need to awaken to a more of a relationship with nature, uh, to respect the tree as a living being and not just a source of lumber, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 
maybe it's all coming together in different ways, like different tributaries moving into one river. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels, it makes me think that the future is bright in those terms. And it, it, it seems like uh, like an um, almost like a potential, uh, the, the re revolution of knowing yourself and, and knowing where you are and knowing your earth and knowing your nature and knowing, like being in, having a, a better relationship with yourself, a better relationship with your habits, a better relationship with your food and a better relationship with nature and and a very relationship with others i i think i mean in the end it i would say that the secret to a happy life is kind of like that in the relationships with yourself and others and and i think that's one of the things that one can very easily easily see through through a psychedelic experience and and i do wonder I, I, at the end of the day regardless of the experience it is about habit change so one can get insights and one can get uh, all the best advice from the best uh, and wisest people in the world but at the end of the day personal responsibility is such an important thing and and really walk in the walk and, and talk not not only talking the talk i guess and what, what are your thoughts about that yeah um no matter how these deep spiritual insights occur, whatever triggers them, uh, they sit there in memory. And uh, with some pe sometimes they kind of flow into behavior change almost automatically. You know, St. Paul and on the road to Damascus uh, didn't need a second experience to start founding the early Christian churches, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, he had a vision of the risen Christ and he went to work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but for some of us, uh, uh, these very inspiring experiences kind of hang there in memory. Uh, you know, everyone is of, of, is of infinite worth. Uh, does that apply to my boss? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Does that apply to our president, <laughs> etc.? You know, um, uh, you know, we we had uh, one volunteer who, in our research, who literally had a job developing uh, weapon systems in the military, and three years later he became a Buddhist monk. Wow. <laughs> You know, he just couldn't do that anymore, you know? That's not where his values were, you know? Uh, we all have limited energy to invest in, hopefully, the evolution of consciousness in a saner, more peaceful world out there. And uh, what do we do at the time we've got? And often there's a impetus that goes with these psychedelic experiences that uh, uh, the old make love not war theme right. uh, is, is not a wimpy thing it's really a very courageous thing yeah you know? mm -hmm. absolutely hmm. well i told you every time i talk with you i feel uplifted i'm already uplifted <laughs>
I, I think that I, I think that I'm I'm very thankful for having people around you in the world doing the work that you do. Yeah. yeah. Now, the whole community of uh, psychedelic researchers, if you will, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger internationally. But it's a very inspiring group of of human beings, you know. Absolutely. With different perspectives, but a common vision. Yeah. Yeah. We are getting back to integrating, you know, like, uh, what does the enlightened man do? You know, but you know, the Jack Cornfield is that you chop wood and carry water, you know, or after the ecstasy, the laundry, you know, but you just don't go up to the top of the mountain and levitate for the rest of your life, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you you come down into the marketplace where all the struggle and the suffering is, you know, and and you do your best to uh, contribute to the world. That doesn't mean that every few weeks you might not climb the mountain for a meditation period, you know, mm-hmm. but you keep coming back. And uh, I often ask myself, well, what is an enlightened person? You know, someone who's awakening, who's awake. And the answer that has been coming to me, which is nothing new about it, but just it's like really kind of having one foot in two worlds, one in the foot of one foot in the everyday uh, world of the ego and one foot in the knowledge of the eternal uh, source of wisdom and inspiration or whatever you want to call that, you know, and to, in awareness, to kind of move back and forth and to integrate those with one another. So you're not exclusively uh, sitting in the lotus position on the top of the mountain and you're not exclusively um, running around like crazy trying to feed starving people but but there, there's a balance you know yeah like being in the world but not off the world that's right yeah yeah and providing I... leadership in the world you know mm-hmm. caring about those stubborn people who don't agree with you you know yeah yeah, and, and compassion and being there for them. I think that in the end, um, regardless of the point of view, we, we live in very polarizing times. And by the end of the day, I, I really do think that regardless of the point of view that anybody has, everybody wants to take care of their family. Everybody wants to like hug their children when, when they're home, uh, hug their wife, uh, make a nice meal, have a good time with your friends and neighbors. And and as long as 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 we could, as we can relate in these small little things, the bigger picture becomes, or, or the bigger abstract ideas of what's right and what's wrong become less of a, of an insurmountable ideological battle and more of a like okay what 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 can we do to make things work for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having a podcast like this helps. It definitely helps me stay on the right track. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, th there's a lot of uh, people still and well-educated people, you know, even in mental health uh, circles who really uh, don't understand uh, what psychedelics can offer uh, the world. They're still stuck in the propaganda of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they're not bad people, they just don't know any better. They're the psychiatrists who uh, uh, just see people coming in the emergency room who took psychedelics without knowing what they were doing, and they're paranoid and panicked, you know. And uh, if that's all that psychiatrist sees, he thinks, boy, these are dangerous, unpredictable drugs. You know, uh, on the other hand, there's all these people who don't show up in the emergency room, right? <laughs> <laughs> who feel that uh, uh, they're awakening, that they're uh, becoming uh, uh, more knowledgeable, more compassionate, uh, more skillful, more humble, more willing to face their own inner demons and uh, tame them. Yeah. I love the idea that a lot of our inner demons are sort of like kids on Halloween that are wearing uh, scary masks. But if you really interact with them, there's a cute little kid behind every one of them, you know? Oh, that's, that's, that's really nice. That's a really nice way to see it. Um, and, and I agree. I think that that's one of the reasons that I want to, uh, that I'm working on, on, on doing this kind of research because I think that if, if I like I'm originally from Ecuador and, and in Ecuador people speak Spanish if I came here and spoke Spanish to everybody some people will understand me but some people may, may, may not mm -hmm. and, and I think it's the same in medicine and mental health and 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 the important an important thing is to speak the language of science and I think it is relevant and it is important to show scientific positive outcomes because yeah i think that's and what also we'll you have to meet people where they are mm -hmm. and speak their language you know um, if you're dealing with the fda you have to speak the language that the fda understands you know mm -hmm. and if you sound too off the wall they turn you off right. you know so part of there's a place for really good judgment and caring about uh you know the skeptics of psychedelics are also uh human beings of infinite worth mm -hmm. and you got to meet them in that some common ground you know absolutely yeah you know, uh, before we run out of time here, mm -hmm. we haven't talked about it, the field that's cl very close to both of our hearts, which is using psychedelics in palliative care yeah. and kind of changing gradually the way we approach death in the Western societies. You know? Absolutely. We're, we're so afraid of death and... and and it's sometimes like I it's sometimes sad to 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 see people experience their last moments of their life in like horrible fear and 
and suffering and 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 a lot of that is like inevitable like the the nature of the decay of the human body will inevitably bring pain and suffering and yet i do think that bringing psychedelic assisted psychotherapy to the terminally ill will i mean and and this is ideally research that will continue to occur i i do think it will create a, a sense of acceptance towards death maybe even uh, reducing a little bit of pain there's research that shows a, a reduction of uh, of general pain with psychedelics and 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 it may become a, a more like a beautiful transitional experience for the person undergoing this and the families uh, it, it it may be something that will bring people closer together and and i don't know what are your thoughts about that yeah, well we have evidence of that you know it, as you know, I've worked with LSD and DPT and psilocybin with uh, terminal cancer patients uh, over the years. And especially those who encounter these very beautiful transcendental forms of consciousness, uh, besides manifesting less anxiety and depression and isolation from other people and preoccupation with pain. They also report loss of a fear of death. And that they approach death instead of with anxiety, more with like a sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember my own father when he was dying said, Bill, I've never died before. I hope I do it right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, he did just fine. <laughs> um, but um, what's interesting to me is that the people who lose their fear of death are not interested in speeding up the arrival of death. They, they do not become uh, suicidal. At least I haven't met any who have. Mm -hmm. uh, rather, the present moment opens up and they want to fill it with people and friendship and good food and music and why not? Why not live until you die? Mm -hmm. Why not have some music and close friends and maybe even a laugh or two on the last day of your life? You know, mm -hmm. you know, and it happens. You know, and finally, it's sort of well, I'm, time to go, guys. <laughs> been great hanging out with you. I'm <laughs> off to new adventures, but but there's not this uh, terror or fear or feeling of failure or resenting uh, how could uh, um, whoever created this universe sure messed up <laughs> <laughs> kind of feeling. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. You know, we're on the verge of starting to integrate psilocybin therapy into palliative care centers in oncology centers, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just the beginning. But if this really takes off in the next few years, it may be quite a normal experience for someone confronting death to be offered psilocybin therapy to help them live more fully. And maybe not just when you're acutely terminal, but when the terminal cancer or whatever it is is first diagnosed. Mm -hmm. you know, so you have more time to uh, 
live as fully as you can. Why not? And it looks, Why not? the future is now. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And it'll, it'll be a beautiful thing when, when it starts happening. I mean, I guess it is happening in terms of research, but it, it'll be a beautiful thing when it becomes widespread. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And yeah, and perhaps eventually it's not only the terminally ill people who could receive psilocybin therapy, but also those who have to grieve the closest mm -hmm. family members mm -hmm. to open up communication in the family in this final uh, phase of a person's life. Uh, so much of psychological distress originates in unresolved grief. You know, old resentments and unre incomplete grief work and all that. That could be prevented with uh, effective psychedelic therapy. Yeah. So true. And, and, and I'm excited for that research to occur. I think that as you say, the future is now. And, and it, it, that, that sounds like the next best, best step after psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy becomes an appropriate FDA-authorized treatment for the terminally ill, uh, going for the caregivers as, as the next treatment of choice sounds like a necessary action. And Well, you know, most of us are mortal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if there's one thing we can agree, all of us, that we're all going to die. That's right. Everyone who's ever been born has died. So there's a pretty good chance that we might too, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we don't have to wait until uh, we're diagnosed with terminal cancer to begin to confront that. Yeah. So true. It's, and, and it's kind of funny that, that, but this is where we need to begin, right? Because this is where so much suffering uh, exists and where so much suffering people can agree that, okay, we should do something about this. And then we can maybe generalize it. And then we can just generalize it to the point where we realize what you just said, we're all going to die. And so maybe we need to start confronting death a little bit earlier. Yeah. And the goal is to live fully. Yes. Until we die. Yeah. Yes. And you are a great example of living fully. I don't think like I, I have never not seen you laughing and not having a great time. <laughs> I do like it here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just requested uh, 10 more years. I hope I can. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for talking with me today. This okay. has been beautiful. Uh, you know, you're, when people of my generation finally uh, graduate from this world, you're going to be carrying the ball. <laughs> uh, enjoy it. Thank you. I'll carry it the best way I can. Namaste. Namaste.